1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
0: Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's episode 30 and my guest this week is Victoria Moore, the highly respected wine editor of the Daily Telegraph, who's here to talk about her soon to be released new book, Fried Eggs and Rioja, what to drink with absolutely everything. Plus, later on, Freddie's back. We'll have our monthly look at life as a wine buyer with the Wine Society's Freddie Bulmer. And as ever, we'll have some medal winning wine and spirit recommendations from the IWSC.
1: The Drinking
2: Hour on Food FM.
0: Victoria Moore describes herself as wine-taster, writer and smell-obsessive. The wine editor of the Daily Telegraph, where she's had a hugely popular weekly column for more than a decade now. Uh, She was author of the best-selling Wine Dine Dictionary, hailed as a Bible for food and drink lovers. And now she's back with a book based on that original, which comes with some of her favourite pairings. And I'm delighted to say that uh, Victoria joins us now. Uh, Victoria, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Good morning. So we'll talk shortly about the new book uh, and how it's come about from the Wine Dine Dictionary. But first, uh, your background is uh, rather like mine, actually, in in kind of news and, and feature writing outside wine. So how did you end up being wine editor of the Telegraph?
2: Like so many people who have made their careers in wine I think it came about almost entirely by accident so I left university with an English degree and absolutely no clue about what I was going to do with my life. I think I applied for about five jobs not very many but they were all completely different. One was with a merchant bank where apparently I got down to the last three people for two places, but didn't get the job. Another was with a market research company. I can't even remember what the other three were. Didn't get any of them. And I thought, "Mm, well, I suppose I like books. Maybe I should write to some publishing companies. Wrote to 20 publishing companies, ended up photocopying in in the publicity department of one of them. Wasn't particularly good at office work, as my boss remarked. And she sort of pushed me over into the, into the books department of a newspaper where I opened a lot more jiffy bags and generally realised that I quite enjoyed journalism and I liked the energy and the vibe. Um, and I liked reading newspapers and I liked writing. And I began to write to people who had got recently been appointed in new jobs thinking that maybe they would give me some work. And completely out of the blue, Christina Rodoni at the New Statesman gave me a drink column. And she said, don't worry, you don't need to know anything. Um, you can just write very honestly as a journalist on a voyage of discovery. I think I was about 25, and so that's what I did. And along the way, I, as everyone else does, I, I took some exams. But I think you learn most of all by standing around a spittoon and talking to people, really, don't you?
0: Most definitely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I left... Uh what you might call sort of hard news journalism uh, for a a second career in my case. Um, I remember telling a friend that I was going off to do a diploma at the WSET because I, inverted commas, needed to know what I was talking about. And my friend said to me, well, that's a first, you've never worried about that before. But uh, um, (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. You learn around a spittoon, you learn from others and you, yeah, you never stop learning. But it's amazing how important it seems to me serendipity is Uh, in the wine trade, actually.
2: It does. I mean, for me, it was just the bit of my career that worked out. I I moved across to the features department and I I wrote features there. And I guess that's where I learnt to write and that's where I learnt to research and learnt to ask questions and perhaps also learnt what editors might be interested in. It wasn't an easy environment to work in. There was a lot of shouting. I'm sure you're familiar with that kind of... Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was really tough. You know, I probably cried about twice a week. But I learnt a lot and I learnt, I learnt that what you wrote would be tested and stamped on and bounced up and down on by editors asking questions, making sure you'd done your job properly, making sure you'd knocked on enough doors, called enough people. And I suppose I had a bit of that to take across to wine writing which maybe made me a bit different from the people who were then doing it. I'm not sure.
0: Well, I I think it shows in your writing, uh, t- to be honest. Uh, and you have, as I said, one of the highest uh, profile uh, columns. I'm not just sort of puffing smoke. I mean, it, it stands to reason. It's in the Telegraph, for goodness sake. Um, I, uh, This is a very male thing to say, but it's also one of the biggest I think. I mean, in terms of um, you can rely on a man to kind of think about size, (laughs) can't you? But but actually it is as a column. uh, You've got a good word count there, haven't you? And a lot of wine columns have got quite a lot smaller in the last sort of couple of decades.
2: I'm really, really lucky. But we cover a huge amount of stories in wine across the Telegraph. I'm always really surprised when people talk about the diminishing column inches of wine in print. Print has got slimmer generally. But I think wine does really, really well. And in The Telegraph, we have three wine writers. You know, There's me, there's Susie, Hamish Anderson, who runs catering at the Tate Galleries, r- writes in the magazine as well. We cover stories in news, in comments, in features. It permeates every page and part of the paper. And I think it's a subject people are really interested in and it, and it really shows, it's just everywhere.
0: Aside from the column, you also write uh, for The Telegraph's luxury supplement as well. Um, does that give you uh, the opportunity to- to sort of trade up a bit, to to sort of splash out rather.
2: It gives me an excuse to keep tasting fine wine, I suppose.
0: Very nice. Uh, Because ordinarily you have to be, I guess, quite sensitive to people's mean incomes when you're making your uh, recommendations.
2: I mainly just think in terms of recommending to my friends or to my mum, or in fact to myself, is it something you would be able to afford to buy on a regular basis is it something you might be prepared to buy as a one off or you know an occasional an occasional buy and that's that's how i try to think of it i think that when you write anything you always need to be really aware of who your readership is and who your audience is just like you are when you're talking to somebody you wouldn't you wouldn't make a really super expensive recommendation to some to a friend that you knew wasn't earning that much money it would just seem really insensitive but equally that friend might come back to you one day and say do you know what I really want to taste a a good 30 pound wine so you just you just try and weight it like that I think one of one of my editors at the Guardian Kath Viner when I used to write the column there gave me that advice she said you just have to you always the most successful journalism is when you are writing something that's appropriate to the space it's in and to the length it's in And it's kind of blindingly obvious, but it's very easy to forget as well.
0: Really good advice, actually. And and as always, the the simplest things are often the best. Uh, And that comes down to food and it comes down to advice, frankly, as as well, doesn't it? Uh, Let's talk about the new book then, uh, Fried Eggs and Rioja. Unusual title, but it makes sense when you think about what's in the book. Uh, Let's um, talk first of all about the very successful Wine Dine Dictionary. Uh, This new book is sort of spawned
2: from that isn't it it is so the wine dine dictionary the idea was to make life simpler for people and to give them lots of options and good ideas and fun ideas and tasty ideas so it's arranged in two parts you can look up the food and have suggestions for wine for what wines might go with it or you can look up the wine and have suggestions for what foods might go with the wine if you've got maybe a special bottle that you want to particularly open for the new book fried eggs and Rioja, we took the food to wine section because we found that was the one that most people wanted to consult most often. And we added some bits and pieces. There are some new entries, there are some new recipes, there are some infograms, kind of quick go-to lists. And that, I hope, will appeal to lots of people who aren't quite so interested in wine as the people who read the first one.
0: You major on pairings, uh, obviously. Uh, Why do you think uh, providing that service is so important?
2: I think it's all about the level of person that you're writing for or the level of drinker so quite a lot of wine people who are drinking fine wine all the time really fine bordeaux and burgundy they're usually the ones i find who think that food and wine matching is a nonsense and ridiculous and i totally understand their point of view if you're drinking an astonishing complex old wine, you probably don't really want very much to to go with it. You want something very simple that doesn't detract attention and that doesn't interfere. But if you're drinking maybe a 10 pound bottle of wine, a five pound, a 20 pound bottle of wine, I think of the wine as another ingredient on the plate. It's there in the mix. Food writers often give suggestions for what what vegetables might go with the dish that they're they're recommending you cook, and they put the whole meal together for you. Wine is just another part of that in that context, and it just simplifies things for people. Also, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been well-fed and watered at, at wineries and with producers across the world, so... I've been exposed to lots of different combinations and it seemed like a nice idea to share some of them.
0: What's rather lovely about having it uh, in a kind of dictionary format is that, of course, uh, when you handed the copy of the book for the first time, you can go through and think, ah, oh, what's she done for asparagus? what she done for ice cream? what she done for chili? All that sort of stuff. And um, so let, let's go through some of those because there are some notoriously difficult uh, pairs. Asparagus is an obvious one because of its extremely strong flavor.
2: Yes, people say that, but I don't find it too tricky. I'm not quite sure how it got that reputation, but I think I think it's not too difficult to put wine with. The key is really whether you're having butter with it, which really changes the taste and and obviously makes it more buttery, as you would expect. Um, but things like Gruner Veltliner and Sauvignon Blanc can go beautifully with asparagus.
0: Yeah, Bordeaux white is uh, is normally my go-to, which is pretty much what you, one of those you list actually in in, in the book. Another uh, area you explore is Chile, a fierce chili. You talk about this mate of yours who who chews raw bird's eye chilies I'm really sensitive to to, to heat and I can find a corner quite uh, you know a bit of hard work I can bring, it brings me out in the sweat so uh, I'm definitely not like uh, your uh, chili chewing friend but um, where do you go for something like a, a red hot chili that is really going to knacker most wines
2: I think chilli is one of the hardest things. That really, really is tricky. You need a bit of sweetness in the wine to make it work because the effect of having a chilli and then drinking wine is the wine just tastes flat, doesn't it? You can't really taste anything at all. It loses all its oomph and all its fruit and all its juiciness. But if you put a wine with some sugar, like a medium dry wine perhaps... Then, then that really, really helps. But food and wine matching has become incredibly difficult because so many, so many dishes today in, in the more modern cooking are much more balanced on the plate. I think that, f- that wine often comes in and balances a slightly unbalanced meal. But if you've got a balance on the plate between sweet and sour, salt, sugar, heat, it, the, wine, the wine struggles to find its place then. So I do think it can be more tricky.
0: And what about ice cream? Because that's one that uh, up to now has has foxed me. And uh, I went through the yeah, went through alphabetically. And and, and uh, actually, you're you're not a, a, so you don't offer that many options for ice cream. Is that because it's sort of basically impossible?
2: I mean, honestly, I don't offer that many options for puddings generally. I'm not somebody who thinks you should be forcing a match with every kind of dish. And for me, there aren't that many there aren't that many puddings that are improved by putting a wine with them, or not slightly spoiled, or where the wine isn't slightly spoiled by the pudding. And yes, ice cream makes your mouth so cold, doesn't it? That it that it's quite hard to taste the wine. So I think I've put a couple in there. Of I, what I've tried to do is put in things that work, but not try to find something just for the sake of it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. You kind of anaesthetise yourself with ice cream, don't you? Really, so it's <laughs>
2: a great it. way of putting it.
0: It sort of stands to reason that it's going to be a bit more of a a challenge. So as well as the alphabetical uh, section, the the dictionary, you have this introduction where you, uh, in a very accessible way, approach some of the science uh, around uh, pairing uh, wine and food, don't you?
2: I do. I talk a little bit about the difference between taste and smell, which I think a lot of people have come to understand a lot better now since the pandemic began. Um, smell has become a much more widely understood sense. But for years and years and years, so much of what we thought of as being taste was actually smell. So all those flavours in the food that, that you experience are actually things that you're smelling. So the taste buds can react to sweet and salt and bitter and sour and also a few other things that we're beginning to understand more about. One of the tastes is umami, which I think you mentioned that you wanted to talk about, which is that very savoury taste that you find in MSG. And
0: uh, where where does umami, for those who are are less familiar with that, because we talk about it quite a bit in the wine world, um, but for those who are less familiar, um, where does that kind of slot in uh, to, we're talking kind of soy sauce here, aren't we?
2: We're talking soy sauce, exactly that.
0: And where does that uh, slot into uh, what you might consider pairing uh, with those kind of flavours. Then
2: I think it slightly depends what else is going on in the dish for this. So it it does change the wine. I tend to put younger wines with with soy sauce. Um, it's quite it has quite a high impact flavour. So I remember being in in a chateau in Pomerol where you would expect them to be matching their wines with quite old fashioned French foods, and they actually served some some kind of tuna. With with a gentle soy, with a very young Bordeaux red, and it worked amazingly well. And that's not a match I would have considered previously. But they were really experimenting with more modern kinds of cooking, so you can it, it takes you in completely different directions. I think, which is always interesting.
0: Yeah, and it's a wonderful thing to taste. I mean, I love sort of savoury flavours. So that umami thing is just something that I I, I really relish and I really. Relish of savoury notes in in wines as well. Um, you then go from imami to what you suggest uh, could be the sixth sense, the sixth taste, which is fat.
2: Yes, um, and as as research goes on, we find more and more that uh, more and more tastes. So metallic is another one. Um, but if you think about it, you you can taste fat. And you can taste. We talk about tasting metal. We talk about being able to taste our blood. If you've ever had an anaesthetic, the anaesthetist will often say to you as you go go under, you might sense a a tiny metallic taste in your mouth. And actually chemotherapy patients often who have taste and smell disorders while they're undergoing treatment often taste this kind of metallic taste. And for a long time, other tastes weren't really accepted in the traditional science. But as we're learning more about them, we're finding that they are there.
0: So do you follow the latest science uh, and the trends with regard to to smell and taste then?
2: I do spend an embarrassing amount of time Googling the latest research on smell and taste. And I think if it's becoming a lot more accessible. And if people are interested, there are places that they can go to to find out and read more. Two of the best ones are mediated by two charities, Fifth Sense and Absent, both of which are um, are set up to help people who've lost their sense of smell, and they host seminars. They they print kind of precies of of the latest research, and and just generally act as forums where people can discuss the the advances in smell science.
0: Well, that's great. Those uh, organisations exist because uh, I was an early adopter of COVID nineteen. I'm afraid to say I I got it. Uh, uh, along with uh, various members of the wine trade, I think at the Washington State Tasting in March 2020. And I spent 10 days with anosmia, um, not at the time really knowing what that was, because it was not a, listed as a, a symptom at that point. And it's really, uh, as you can imagine, really terrifying, actually.
2: I was just going to say you were probably quite lucky because you probably didn't have the fear that people had later when they thought it might not come back. But you did. were you worried it would stay away for a long time?
0: Well, no, you're absolutely right. I I was less worried because I didn't know it existed. So therefore, I just assumed it was a temporary phenomenon. And because people weren't really talking about it at the time, um, then by the time I really discovered what it was, uh, my sense of of smell and taste had fortunately come back. So I I was very fortunate, actually. Yes.
2: I remember once interviewing the nose for Chanel or the former nose for Chanel, a guy called Jacques Polge. And he had just suffered from post-viral smell loss, which as you can imagine had sent him around to every private doctor in Paris, practically um, desperately in search of a solution. But he, you know, like you, his had then come back within a couple of weeks, but I interviewed him shortly afterwards and he was still a little bit shell-shocked about it. But I, I think it's a very uncomfortable experience, but I'd be interested to know, how did you notice you'd lost your sense of smell? Do you feel that you noticed the minute it went? Or do you no. think you, yeah?
0: I, I actually, I opened, um, I, I started to feel a little bit better, so I opened a wine that I very much enjoyed, usually uh, because um, I felt sufficiently well enough and I hadn't had a drink for, you know, whatever it was, a week. Uh, I thought, oh, I can have that. That would be a real treat. It's Friday night and I couldn't taste a thing.
2: And, and when you thought back, did you think, oh, actually, I've been feeling a little bit cut off?
0: Yes, but it was only when I mentioned it to a friend of mine, um, because at that point I was back out again, I wasn't contagious and I was well enough, and I I was chatting to a friend of mine who said, oh, I read a research piece in something like uh, The New Scientist or something about that, and that's when I I realised that that... Uh, was clearly a symptom, and it was another six or eight weeks before the government listed it as an official symptom. So, yeah, it was a a, a remarkable thing. And that's why this is so interesting, because um, when you're not armed with smell and taste, um, it's, uh, it's horrific, actually.
2: I can imagine, but people people suffer from depression because of it and they routinely talk about feeling disengaged from life, feeling like they're behind a sheet of glass, cut off from their environment. It can upset relationships if you can't smell your partner or your children, Or, apart from being difficult to manage because we use our sense of smell all the time without realising that we are doing. I think that's why we don't value it enough. And I think it just can make people incredibly unhappy and stressed.
0: I, I, I now find myself able to empathise in a way that I, I, I couldn't before. Do, do you find yourself going around smelling really unusual things or even people?
2: I, I do sometimes catch myself sampling people as I walk down the street. Slightly <laughs> embarrassingly, more than slightly embarrassingly. I, a friend once caught me doing it and she was like, did you just sample that person? I, yeah, I think I did. Um, <laughs> but i think because of COVID as well i'm i'm in a permanent state of checking that i can still smell things there's there's a theory that one of the reasons why we sometimes take a long time to notice that our sense of smell has disappeared is because it's you inhale and you smell and you take in some air and some aroma particles and then you exhale and it goes out again so it's this kind of on off on off sense which makes it harder to tell when it's suddenly not there so you you do have to keep checking. But no, I, I smell, but I, I think this. I'm very dependent on my sense of smell for my mood. If I'm feeling stressed, I might wander. I live quite close to the Thames and I might wander down to the river and I just find that very sort of oceanic, that slightly muddy, slightly saline smell. For some reason, I just find it really relaxing. I mm. I don't like it if my house smells wrong. I don't, you know, I, I notice if my child's ill, if she smells wrong. We used to call it at home, poorly smell. We weren't allowed off school unless we had what my mum called poorly smell. She would sort of sniff us to check that we weren't making things up. I I feel as if my whole life is, is lived through my sense of smell. I'm not a very musical person and I'm not very visual either. So it all comes from that.
0: Yeah, I'm similar in that I can come into the house sometimes and... Uh, my partner will be baffled as I go around going (laughs) there's something that doesn't smell absolutely quite right it's not wrong necessarily but it's just different it's it's really uh, do you think that's because we work in wine or is it just the way we're built
2: I think we work in wine because we're like that or at least in my case, it, it wouldn't have worked for me, wine, if I hadn't had that great big attention to the sense of smell. Because it, I definitely came to wine through smell rather than to smell through wine. And I think some people perhaps are the other way around. But just just noticing how much people use their sense of smell, it just never stops surprising me. So I remember, and using it in a very everyday context, but it's a kind of superpower, isn't it? It does amazing things. Mm. It tells us such a lot about people. So a few weeks ago, I walked outside my front door and said hello to a lady who lives down the street and completely freaked her out because actually she was behind the hedge and I couldn't see her. But I hadn't noticed I couldn't see her because I could smell her perfume and I knew she was there. I once picked my daughter up from nursery and said, oh, she's, she's not got the right cardigan. This isn't hers. And it was unusual because none of her clothes had a name tape in nobody bothered with that at nursery but she never ever ever came home with the wrong clothes and her teacher took the cardigan off her and just instinctively put it to her face and went oh no you're right that's charlotte's and i looked at her and i said is that is that what you do for all the children in your class is that how they have the right cardigans and she just kind of thought about it and she said yes it is. I thought it was an amazing example of the sense of smell being used. Without she hadn't stopped to consider it. She wasn't conscious of what she was doing, but she was she was there, sniffing sniffing the clothes and giving them to the right person. Fantastic. Uh, Much uh, easier than sewing in name tapes, huh?
0: Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, you, you're right. It's a superpower. I love this idea of smell man or wafter woman. You know, as a sort of superheroes. But um, you. you um, you you could um, have gone down the route of doing the Master of Wine with your you know knowledge experience and your uh, very acute uh, olfactory uh, skills. Um, instead, you went for a, a different kind of master, a master's in psychology. Why did you do that?
2: I didn't think that the Master of Wine would make me very happy, and I've always been interested in wine. And in, from the perspective of the person who's drinking it and what's going on in their head and what's going on for them when they open a bottle of wine. And I thought that psychology would play into my interests much more. i interested in the choices people make, how their perception works, all of these things. So I should fess up and say I didn't actually finish the psychology masters. I did three out of four years of the course and I ended up with a diploma because I became pregnant at the end of the third year and as you know as a freelancer I had zero maternity leave coming my way I had a book to write in that year and I was going to have a baby and I thought you know what I think holding down a full-time job and writing a book and having a baby with no maternity leave and finishing this master's might be a bit more than I can manage. So I cashed out with a diploma, but it was it was such a fascinating course and I learnt so much about how our senses work that, that made it easier for me then to keep pursuing this interest in smell and taste.
0: Yeah, well, thank goodness you did. And uh, just finally, there's a really... There's a note uh, in your I think it's in the introduction to Fried Eggs and marioca that really made me laugh uh you you basically pair you pair a wine with the smell of something cooking, even though you won't necessarily pair the wine with the dish once it's cooked.
2: That seems completely normal to me, you see um and i think I think that you're probably talking about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Thai green curry. Yes. You are because it never quite works with the food because of the chili in the dish. But somehow that brightness and the luminosity of the Sauvignon Blanc is just so lovely with the smell of the ingredients, the lemongrass being chopped and the the, the coconut milk. They're just really beautiful together. And actually, I tend to drink more as an aperitif almost than I do with the food, which might sound odd given I've written a food and wine matching book but it's it's the it's the setup isn't it it's the bit where you're just nibbling and you're having a bit of this and a bit of that and you can smell the food and you're probably paying more attention to the wine at that point than at any other point in the evening as well
0: that moment of recreation isn't it because you're if you enjoy cooking uh, you've you've done your work and it's like ah oh, at that point uh, and the two things go together i guess
2: it's exactly that it's exactly that you're right
0: it's a great pleasure to chat to you i've uh, been wanting to for a while i always enjoy uh, sort of nabbing you for a few words at, at tastings when I see you it's a really uh, great idea for a book it's it's uh, really beautifully executed as well so I, I would highly recommend it it's released on November the 4th but you can uh, pre-order it now if you go to places where you can pre-order books and um, uh, the best of luck with it I, I think it's going to be a, a huge hit Victoria thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour
2: thank you very much for having me
0: In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love.
2: Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying The Drinking Hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and The Drinking Hour.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using
1: the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
0: Okay, it's time for our first selection of medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And let's kick off with a gold medal winner, Elysium Black Muscat 2018 from... Quadi Winery in California. Black Muscat, the grapes for the wine, are the same as the massive vine at Hampton Court Palace, if you know that. It was originally made from leftover grapes grown for sacramental wine. Giving their golden gong, the judges said, it takes you to a lazy summer afternoon eating warm cherries that have been macerating in creme de figue in the hazy sunshine. Very aromatic, with notes of wild strawberry jam, orange flower-infused homemade grenadine, and plum compote. Expressive and exuberant. And quite a tasting note as well. Uh, to Germany next, and Rheinhessen uh, Kendermann's Riesling Spatlese 2020 was a silver medal winner. A modern style of Riesling fermented in stainless steel, giving their medal, the judges said, tangy, ripe and flavourful with preserved lemon, honeyed beeswax and a smattering of delicate elderflower. The acidity is soft and sumptuous, bringing a clean simplicity, shining with varietal purity. That's easily available, by the way, at Morrison's if you're keen to try it, and it's just eight quid, which is not bad for a silver medal winner. And here's a gin next, a silver medal winner too, Wessex Distillery, Alfred the Great Gin, The judges said a classic London dry nose with bold juniper, cassia bark and lemon zest. All aspects are well integrated, leading to a super clean and fresh finish. It's also a great looking gin. They put a real effort into the presentation. Uh, And just one of many medal winners from that distillery at this year's IWSC.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
0: Is it really a month since we last heard from Freddie Bulmer? Incredibly, yes, it is. Uh, So let's take uh, our monthly look at life for a wine buyer. Uh, Freddie is in charge of Australia, New Zealand, Eastern Europe and Austria, which sounds like a very big job. Uh, We're talking wine (laughs) rather than running them uh, at the Wine Society. Uh, He's the buyer for those countries and he joins us now. Uh, Freddie, welcome back to The Drinking Hour.
1: Hello, David. It's nice to be back. I, yeah, as you say, I can't believe it's been a month already. Time's flying.
0: <laughs> it's, oh, you should try having a monthly column, my Club in a monthly <laughs> column. Uh, the uh, editor sends me an email saying, uh, oh, it's time to write your column again. And I always think, oh, it can't be, but it is. Uh, yeah, so it, it does Terrifying. fly by the older you get. Um, so um, let's chat about press tastings, because yes. uh, that's one of the occasions where I, I sort of see you in the flesh normally, because the buyers are, are wheeled out for a... Us journalists at the uh, press <laughs> tastings you do them a few times a year and this was a happy occasion because this was not a new normal this was pretty much back to normal wasn't it
1: yeah it was it was fantastic actually to see people in in real life in the flesh as you say because uh, we'd been running them online as most people had been obviously and I mean we'd been forced to throughout Covid which is great because, uh, you know, there's pros and cons to both, of course. If you're a wine writer that lives outside of London or much more sort of uh, further afield, then the online tastings obviously work really nicely. You get a little sample bottle sent, and uh, you can log in onto the Zoom chat. But I, I love actually getting together in a room with people and, and tasting the wines uh, with other people. I think it's a really... Lovely thing to do, and it was great to be back.
0: You're always so enthusiastic uh, about wines. You're you're a kind of tigger kind of character (laughs) uh, in the room. (laughs) Uh,
1: Is
2: is that Uh, I'll take uh, that? Have you
0: been that before? I've
1: never been. I've never been called tigger uh, before. I've been called uh, many uh, uh, awful things, you know. As I'm sure you can imagine, (laughs) but uh, but uh, so tigger in comparison. uh, So I'll take that. He's a bit of a nutter, but uh, as you say, very enthusiastic. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I, I guess it must be important though that enthusiasm because it is infectious and at the end of the day these are very personal decisions you've taken when you choose yeah. these wines aren't they
1: that's that's very true yeah i think uh, there's nothing more thrilling i think in in my job than discovering something new you know discovering a new wine and uh getting it out in front of people and and getting their feedback and and the feeling that you get when you, you know, add a press tasting, for example, show a new wine that's a new new discovery and people love it, it's great. It's such a nice feeling. You know, it's uh, it's a really fulfilling, I think. So, you know, I'm lucky to be able to find all sorts of interesting wines some interesting people all over the place. And there is a feeling of excitement, of course, when you make that discovery. But then there's also a slight feeling of nervousness that then comes where you think, I hope i'm not completely on my own here and thinking this is absolutely delicious but then getting it out in front of people and 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 getting the enthusiasm across that i feel for it uh, i think is is all is all part of it and then yeah when people say god that's delicious you know it's been a, a job well done and uh it's a fantastic feeling
0: i remember a few years ago when you were still uh, much newer to the role um mm. as a, a buyer i remember uh jancis robinson um, M-W-O-B-E, uh, writes up uh, uh, her tasting notes uh, mm. from the Wine Society tasting. It's always, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people read that and it's a great indicator yeah. of, of quality. And she actually singled you out by name Did she? for, oh, for some specific uh, <laughs> wines. They were, I think they were Hungarian uh, oh. wines that you'd brought into uh, into the portfolio. They were new yes. at that particular tasting. How important is that kind of validation?
1: Do you know, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it, especially, um, I mean, when I was at that point in my career where I was still very much kind of cutting my teeth, to get that sort of validation from someone like Jansis is such a, such a special thing, actually. And it's really encouraging. Uh, and it's really nice to know that you're doing the right thing, you're on the right track. And I mean, praise from someone like Jancis, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, so it's Yes, it's a wonderful thing, and, and you know whether it's Jancis or, or, or any you know wine writer, wine journalist, really, when you read positive notes about things that you've bought or things that you've had some involvement in, in you know bringing into the UK, it feels really nice because as you touched on earlier, it is quite a personal thing. You know, I, I'm bringing wines in that I believe are fantastic, and it's lovely when you find that other people agree
0: and how do you go about uh, selling something that no one's heard of i only ask this because uh, <laughs> uh, we mentioned uh, the month going by and my column uh, for club uh, on Enologique this this uh, month uh, i'm focusing on uh, you know almost a creed occur to get um, uh, retailers to to offer us more unusual and indigenous yeah. grapes now the yeah. wine society does quite a lot of this anyway so i've made a point of of kind of making the the, the society an honorable exception here uh <laughs> to my complaint that there's too much homogeneity on the supermarket shelves but of course there is a challenge here retail you have to sell stuff otherwise yeah, you're not in business yeah, so yeah, how do you get people interested in things that they've never heard of
1: God, that's a really good question. I think that we are particularly lucky at the Wine Society uh, because we have a, a membership, you know, a captive audience of a high percentage of the UK's passionate wine drinkers who are interested to, to sort of broaden their horizons anyway. So we doubtless, you know, have it easier in that respect than uh, a lot of other companies. Um, but it's about, I think, going back to your, your point about enthusiasm. I think it is about enthusiasm and genuine passion and understanding of the wines that you're bringing in when they are wines that other people perhaps haven't have, haven't heard of and I think um it's also about correct placement so you know I can't speak so easily for for other businesses but uh, you know I know that at the wine society when I discover something which is a bit weird and wonderful and maybe it's from a producer or a grape or something that nobody's heard of over here for me, it's about, first of all, thinking, well, where am I going to put this? Where am I going to sell this? What's the what's the right vehicle, whether it's just going up on the website or whether it's going into, um, you know, we do these offers of kind of off the beaten track wines, which are fantastic and allow you to tell a bit of the story. So first of all, it's thinking about where to put them. And then secondly, it's about, and this I think is really important, probably even more important than the first step. It's about passionately and engagingly telling the story of that wine, because I think that's one real joy about the uh, more weird and wonderful side of the wine world is that for most drinkers in the UK, there is inherently an interesting story behind it because it's weird and different and and unusual. And if you can tell that story really engagingly and really uh, interestingly, then more often than not, you know, a keen wine drinker would read it and go that sounds interesting I'll give that a go and then from that point on it's really about just trying to build up momentum it's about first of all getting the wine into people's glasses and you know in front of their noses Uh, and then the quality has to kind of speak from that point forward so so the most difficult thing is getting people to you know in many cases pick it up off the shelf so to speak Uh, but provided that as a buyer you've picked something that is genuinely delicious as well then you tend to find that with time the momentum picks up so it's really it 's a really rewarding feeling uh, when you sort of get real success for a wine which you know is is weird and nobody 's ever heard of <laughs> it 's a lovely feeling I can imagine, and I assume uh, the press tasting is
0: one of the tools in your armory for that basically
1: yeah absolutely yeah so when um, when we select wines to go into the press tastings. I'm always trying to put myself in the shoes of the you know of folks like yourself, people who have to write about these things and try to where possible, make your job that little bit easier by putting forward wines which have a you know a clear story behind them. So it's not easy, of course, to write about what makes one uh, you know 12 pound Bordeaux red different to the next. But if you're talking about a, you know, a Mavrud from Bulgaria, immediately then you've got the opportunity to write about what this, you know, less usual grape variety is, what's happening with Bulgarian wine, you know, it sort of um, creates a story itself. So the press tasting is a fantastic vehicle to get those wines out, uh, you know, and hopefully then into some columns. And, and yeah, it's, uh, it's it's something that I try to make the most of actually.
0: And another thing that presumably doesn't do any harm is getting a medal for a wine,
1: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And uh, of course,
0: you uh, do some uh, judging for the IWSC uh, sponsors yes. of this program, um, as do I. Uh, yeah. But you, you are also, uh, for a couple of years at least, you've been on the trophy judging day, which comes at the end. And I did this uh, for the first time. I was very uh, honoured to be invited uh, this year. Uh, we can't uh, do a spoiler on the results because they're not <laughs> out till next week. Um, but um, tell us, uh, for the benefit of those who don't know, what the trophy judging entails.
1: Yeah, so so the trophy judging is a brilliant experience. It comes at the very end of all of the other uh, judging. So when one, once all of the new and old world wines have been judged over, uh, a, well, it's about a couple of weeks in total, but split up, there's one big day where uh, we go through the gold medal wines. So, all the gold medals get retasted. And we have a think about whether any of those really stand head and shoulders uh, above the other golds. And if so, they might get awarded a-, a trophy, you know, for being a real standout wine. So, it's a really fantastic and rewarding experience doing the trophy judging because. Yeah, you know, everything there is is delicious. It's already good enough to be gold. So uh, there's there's no duds, which is fantastic. And it's all about just trying to to find the, the very best of the best. I
0: was. Uh slightly apprehensive because I I didn't uh, know quite what to expect when I walked into the room for the uh, (laughs) trophy judging. And I was on a panel with Alex Hunt, a master of wine who runs Berkman Wine Cellars, has a famously brilliant palette. And with Isabelle, master sommelier runs the restaurant Trivet. Again, amazing palette. And there was little old me sitting there as well. And the first flight, Alex uh, invited me to speak first. And I genuinely, uh, and, and I almost died, but I genuinely didn't um, didn't believe that beyond a gold medal, these were obviously, as you said, there are no duds. They're obviously excellent wines, but mm. I just didn't quite believe there was a trophy winner there. And and mm. my goodness me, it, it, they both agreed, and the relief I felt oh. at that point. Uh, it, it is it is quite. You, you have this big responsibility on your shoulders, don't you?
1: You do. You do. And the the panel, um, likewise, you know, I was judging with two other people as uh, Matteo Montoni, who's a, a fantastically talented sommelier and an incredible taster. And Alistair Cooper, uh, MW, who's just, fant- again, a fantastic taster and incredibly knowledgeable. And um, it, it does feel like quite a high pressure situation having to give your personal views on a particular flight of wines. But what's nice, and I've you know I've really enjoyed about judging at the IWSC is there's no egos. You know everybody is just there because they're good at what they do, and uh, and they want to kind of have the conversations. They enjoy tasting the wines. They enjoy talking about the wines. But it is a really nice feeling when (laughs) when you go well, I think this is how I feel about this flight. But I hope I'm not completely on my own. And then and then you find that actually everyone's on the same page, and you go oh. That's nice. That is a, it, it is a relief. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it's back to validation again, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are no egos. That's not allowed. And what I love is there's a real respect for the juice. There's a respect for the wine and for the yeah. graft that has gone into making those wines as well, isn't there?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're always thinking about, you know, what is it that we're tasting and what's gone into making that? And I do a quite, a, quite a lot of judging for the uh amongst other things the sort of the eastern europe and and even um georgian wines and and even some russian wines and things like that and especially when you're judging places like that you've got to really be considerate about the fact that making wine in some of these parts of the world isn't easy and the amount of effort and and passion that's been put into these wines by the winemakers has to be respected and 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 thought about and you know so uh, Often these wines um, don't necessarily get you know, gold straight off the bat. But when you see encouraging winemaking and you see a producer who's, who's uh, put a wine in, which actually think, do you know what, they're really on the right lines there. It's important to try and encourage them and, and, and kind of let them know that with your scores um, and, and hope that then that spurs them on to kind of keep on going. And hopefully next year or the year after they'll enter and, and, and will come away with the gold.
0: And it really makes you think about the importance, the value that's attached to those mm. uh, medal certificates that you get uh, on the label of the bottle, doesn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that for anybody who's, who's coming away with a, you know, a gold medal... Uh, it's it's hugely significant because I mean going back to you know the validation thing that we were just talking about is validation for that for them as well you know they'll have been grafting away for however long at their winery making their wines doing it because they believe it's the right way to do it and they believe that it's it's delicious uh, but actually to get somebody else often from a completely uh, you know different country and 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 where the IWSC is concerned some of the best uh i i'm I'm with you i mean i'm I'm in awe of some of the other people who are there (laughs) there's some fantastic tasters there but uh to, to get a gold from from a competition like that does mean a lot and also of course it'll have a great hopefully a great impact on sales too for them yeah
0: as you say the standards are incredibly high and the standard of judging is is incredibly high too and uh it's uh it's just a a great thing to be part of so it's yeah. also great to chat to you every month so um i uh, i look forward to, uh, to to next time and uh, uh we've had your headaches before we had your sort of we had your happy <laughs> times this time which is which is great yeah you, it's nice and i i can't wait to find out uh when, when we see those uh, trophy results uh, next week to see who's uh who's got what. Uh, it's going to be yeah, me uh, too. really great. But uh, for now, uh, Freddie, thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour.
1: Oh, thanks for having me again, David. It's always a pleasure. I'll see you in, in what feels like five minutes time next month. <laughs> <laughs> the Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition,
0: using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. OK, there's just time for another trio of medal winners before we go. These from the IWSC 2021 Hall of Fame and to Hungary first. And a gold medal winner, uh, sent Tamás Ferment 2018 from Balassa Bor. Dry Ferment from Tokai. Uh, this started as an idea over a beer in the summer of 1999, apparently. Uh, dry Ferment from Tokai. Uh, is a absolutely fantastic wine, and uh, the winemaker said it's the second most exciting job there is after being 007, which is fair enough. Uh, the judges were shaken and stirred, uh, giving their gold, they said, a complete wine that balances medium dry ripe tropical fruits, apple, pears and lemon, creating a lovely minerality and a vibrant acidity. Beautifully textured, with some honeyed, nutty and minty herbal notes adding to the complex, long finish. Next, a wine with a great name, uh, Time Waits For No One, 6M 2020, from Finca Bacara in Humilla in Spain. It won a silver medal. This is 100% Monastrell, uh, that's the grape known as Mourvedre in France. A uh, fantastic looking wine, the label is really a work of art in itself. Uh, the winery was founded in 2016 to celebrate the Monastrell Grape and the vineyards are 900 meters above sea level. All the wines are vegan and gluten free. Uh, the judges said, Obsidian, midnight black in colour, dark cherries and plums with pronounced sweet spice aromas of cardamom and anise with hints of leather. A powerful palette with some lovely complexity. And to southern France, finally, and the beautiful Roussillon region for our next silver medal winner, Soleil Blanc 2019 from Chateau Lauriga. Situated near Perpignan, a portion of this land used to be part of the old Laurinier that was given to the Cuxa Abbey by the King of France in 1068. And that's land which later became the King's Vineyards and which produced some of the wines served at the court of the King of Aragon. The judges said an oak led nose, followed by a creamy, toasty palette, layered with hints of vanilla and tropical stone fruits, with a delicious finish. And now for my own delicious finish, because that's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. Thank you to my guests today, uh, Victoria Moore and Freddie Ballmer. Don't forget, uh, Victoria's book, Fried Eggs and Rioja, is available to pre order now and is uh, out from November the 4th. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Do join us next time, but for now, it's goodbye.
1: The Drinking Hour on
2: Food FM.